I think that's a pretty exciting update, right? Can we celebrate that? Totally agree. Listen, um, we are at that point in the journey where we are underway. It's going to be super exciting to get to move across the street to the renovated Fellowship Hall, St. Andrew's room, bathroom, some of the areas that are across the street, as well as the chance to just continue to see the progress. And as Pastor Deanne said, we are over 80% of the way there. And that last 20% is always the hardest to kind of marshal together. And I just want to say thank you that there's a, a ton of individuals and families who have been generous and have made sacrificial commitments to what we are doing. And there's a lot of us that have not had a chance to jump on board and to participate. If we all band together, we can do this and we can get to the finish line and we can do this without debt and we can make this dream a reality. And I want to connect the dots for you to what we did just a few moments ago over there when we made a promise in baptism to welcome these families into our lives and worship, to support them with our love and our prayer, and to provide for their nurture in this community of faith. When we talk about doing a renovation like this and in catalyzing ministry and mission that's beyond our operating budget, what we're doing is we're making a strategic investment in the future of this church. I just went and had a session retreat this last weekend with our, uh, with our elders and I talked about the state of a variety of different opportunities and threats that's going on in the world. And I talked to him about the state of our denomination. In 1984, there were over 3 million PCUSA Presbyterians in the United States. In 2022, there were only a million. And at the same rate of decline that is our denomination, there will be less than a half a million people by the year 2040 if nothing happens. If you project out that Peachtree did nothing but tread water over the course of that period of time, we would be over 1% of the entire denomination in terms of all of the work and the ministry that takes place. And so I just want to be clear that we have an amazing opportunity to continue the beautiful expression that is the gospel, that is our reformed family of faith, and the, the vibrancy and the joy of the way that we have that thoughtful expression of God's good news together in and through Peachtree. That is something that our community desperately needs. It is a part of the promise that we make. And if we pull together, we can get there. Amen? All right. So we are in the fall walking through what looks like a pamphlet, but it really is a letter. You can open up your Bibles or you can open up this pamphlet that we have copies of in the back in this booklet because we are walking old school expository style chapter by chapter through one of the most influential letters in all of history. A letter that declares what the good news, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And this is how Paul describes it. He says that it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, Paul's letter to the church at Rome is 16 chapters. It's easy to get lost in the maze of his argument, so we've broken it down for you into kind of four segments, four parts of the, the relay race. What a mess, what a gift, what a God, and what a difference. And we've talked about what a mess that our lives of unrighteousness and sin have made of ourselves and of this world and our community. And we've been talking about over the course of the last handful of chapters, in light of the brokenness that there is this gift of grace that God makes available 
to us. And I shared with you through the commentary of Tim Keller how he says that in this section on grace that there's a fundamental shift. That in chapters 4 and 5, Paul talks about the grace that is for us. And then in chapters 6 and 7, he starts to talk about the grace that is within us. Now, I need to make an important philosophical and theological distinction for you. And I'm just going to ask you unapologetically to just put on your thinking caps for a minute, for just a few moments to let me explain to you a concept that's really important for your ability to understand the Bible and to understand what the faith is all about. I need to distinguish for you the difference between objective reality and subjective reality. Objective reality is something that is out there that is true no matter what. Subjective reality is something that might be inside of us that is experience that can wax and wane. So the idea that there is a God, objectively, that's either true or false. That's an objective reality. It can't be both. But subjectively... Whether you believe or God is a different question. Of what we declare in baptism is that God is with us always. That is an objective fact that is either right or wrong. Subjectively, God could always be with us, but does that mean that you always experience his presence in every moment of every day? We have declared, as we've been walking through this letter, that in Jesus Christ you are forgiven. In faith, we believe that that is an objective reality, but do you always act and live and breathe out of the forgiveness that you have received? Or we've talked about how you were free in Christ. Do you always live out of the freedom that's been entrusted to you? Do you start to see the distinction between objective reality and subjective reality? And one of the most insidious things that is happening in today's world is that modern philosophical thought says that there is no longer objective reality and there's only what is true for you, what is true inside. And I'm here to tell you that if you're trying to understand God's word, you have to understand that there are some things that are true no matter what. And at times, we may have trouble living into and understanding those realities. This will be important as we march through this chapter. So bear that in mind as we look at Romans chapter 7, starting in the 15th verse. This is Apostle Paul writing. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Is everybody tracking with what he's saying this far? <laughs> so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. Welcome to the most controversial chapter in kind of scholarship circles of the entire book of Romans. For you see, when scholars get together and they read this, they they have a debate, they have a disagreement, they have an argument about what is Paul describing as he so vividly characterizes what's going on. I mean, you got to think about it for a moment. I mean, the Apostle Paul has talked about the freedom that we have in Christ, the forgiveness that we have in Christ, the grace that has come to us, and all of these things that are true. And many of these scholars say, if those things are true, there's no way that Paul is describing his current situation and his experience. He must be projecting back B.C. before Christ. That's not how I see it. I want to cut through the debate and just demonstrate the power of grammar to settle what's going on here. Paul uses the past tense before this passage and then he writes in the present tense. Paul is not describing his life before Christ. He's describing his life right now. This is the Apostle Paul. The one who was blinded by the light. The one who had a direct encounter with God. The one who met the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is the prominent evangelist, missionary, and theologian of the early church. And here in Romans 7, he is chronicling for you in the present tense as he sits in Corinth and as he is writing to the church at Rome that he struggles. And I want to be very clear that there is a subtle thing that happens in churches and in Christian theology that does a great harm on people's souls. Because I think there's a lot of people that are like, you know what? We've been forgiven. We've been freed. We have this grace. We have all of these dimensions. And if you just believed a little more, you wouldn't struggle. The struggles that Paul is talking about are not struggles of circumstance, of like something that happened to him. He's describing an inner turmoil, an inner struggle. Just in this last month, I have met with a man who is struggling with debilitating anxiety. He believes in God. He believes in Jesus. He still struggles. And I think it is wrong for me to just say, You just need to believe a little more. There's a woman in this congregation that I met with in the last month who is struggling with a horrible form of an addiction. And I think it would be wrong 
for me to think, you know what, she just hasn't really encountered Jesus yet. Because if she did, she wouldn't struggle with that addiction. And so the bottom line of what I want you to hear, it, it just sounds like the simplest thing in the world. Christians struggle. We do. I struggle. Not struggled. I struggle. And you may not be struggling right now in your journey, but faith is not a shield against, in a fallen world, the struggles that are going on right now, the battle within. I kind of even wrestle with some of the language that Paul used. Did you, did you notice this verse of what Paul said here when he said, wretched man that I am? I mean, is that how you talk to yourself when you're giving yourself a pep talk in the mirror in the morning when you wake up? So I looked up this, this word, and I was shocked. I'd never looked up this word before in the original Greek. It is the noun form of what is a more common verb, which means to feel miserable, to lament, or to be distressed. A better translation, because when I hear the word wretched man that I am, I hear him saying, I'm a really bad dude. What Paul is saying is that I'm in great distress. And I think we need to give ourselves permission, if Paul's willing to say it, that we sometimes need to admit that we're in distress. And so what I want to tell you today is that it's okay to struggle, and you need to know that there are extraordinary resources for you with the gospel in your struggle. And so through Romans 7, I want to share with you some of the, some of the grace that's available to you in the midst of your struggle. And the first thing is not going to sound like a grace, but it is. It is the grace of confusion. It is the grace of disorientation. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it. For I do not understand my own actions. And this is what that grace means. The grace of confusion means that grace begins in the struggle by admitting what we don't know. If you think that you know it all and you've got it all figured out, it is hard for you to subjectively tap into grace in the midst of your struggle. The Bible tells us to never claim to be wiser than we are. The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. The Bible tells us, as, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, to live at peace with everybody. And so we ought to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And what the grace of confusion happens in those moments of disorientation, if we'll allow it to happen, is that it causes us to have the humility to say, okay, I don't understand what's going on here. I don't even understand myself. And I, don't, I think that if you don't start there, you don't get anywhere with grace in the struggle. The second 
manifestation of grace, according to Romans 7 and Paul's experience with the struggle, is this. It is the grace of conviction. Here's how Paul says it. This is verse 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The way this plays out in our lives, the grace of conviction, grace shows us where we need to be. It feels like when we read chapter 6 and chapter 7 in particular that Paul doesn't like the law very much. You might even draw the false or erroneous conclusion that Paul is anti-law. He is not anti-law. He is anti-law as a means of salvation. He is anti-law that the law is sufficient for us to be able to be rescued. The proper use of the law of what Paul says is that the law tells us what it means to be in a right relationship with God. And so the law plays a role of convicting us of the gap between where we are and how God wants us to be and to live. That's one of the primary reasons that we have been given the law. Now here's the tricky part. The law is always meant for conviction, but we in religious leadership and in churches often take the law a place that it's not supposed to go. We don't just use the law for conviction, we use the law for condemnation. And it says right at the end of the passage that we just finished reading, the first verse of chapter 8, looking ahead, peeking ahead, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, if you're looking at the standard that God puts before you and me, and you're using that as a form of shame, that's not the purpose of the law. And that's not what we're supposed to do as a church. Conviction, yes. Condemnation, no. Grace in the struggle starts with confusion, continues with conviction, and then thirdly, grace starts to unlock with confession. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it here. For I have the desire to do what is right. I admit that. But I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And so this is what the grace of confession means. Grace enables us to be honest with our limitations and vulnerable with others. Notice that the Apostle Paul is not just telling God this. He's confessing to the whole church at Rome. And if the Apostle Paul is willing to be that honest about his limitations, if he's that willing to be that vulnerable with them, do you think that we could in the security and the sanctity of the gift that is the community of fellowship of believers that is what we call the church? Starts with confusion, takes baby steps with conviction, starts to really move with confession. And finally, grace is there in the midst of your struggles Celebration? What? This is how the Apostle Paul puts it. 
who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me ask you a question. Has the Apostle Paul been delivered from his struggle as he writes this, as he sends it to Rome? Nope. But he is so confident of the deliverance. He is borrowing future grace. He is leaning into the future of what he knows the deliverance that is to come. And so this is what the grace of celebration looks like. He's able to be thankful to God even in the struggle because of his confidence in the deliverance. That he's waiting on the deliverance. Subjectively, he doesn't feel the deliverance yet. He feels the warfare. But he is so objectively sure that the deliverance will come that he's able to just even give thanks even though he doesn't feel it and even though he's just caught in the middle of the struggle. I was thinking of a modern-day illustration for this, and I got caught on an ancient one instead. It's a story that you're familiar with. It's a story that Jesus tells of a man who had two sons, and the youngest of them says, I wish you were dead. Divide up the inheritance. I'll take it right now. Thank you very much. And then he goes and he squanders that property, and then the son is looking at the pig slot. When he says, what am I doing? Confusion. Then he says, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. Conviction. And then he starts rehearsing a speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And so he starts the process of confession. But as the father approaches him and he starts to give his confession, before he's even finished his confession, the father interrupts. And he says... Get the fatted calf and kill it. It's time to partay. That's what it says in the original Greek. (laughs) Is there still stuff for them to work on as a family? Yeah. There's some therapy sessions going to need to happen. But the future comes into the present... It breaks in. The most common description that Jesus had for the kingdom of God was as a party. And we're able to celebrate on earth, even though things aren't on earth as they are supposed to be in the heavens, because we're drawing off of that future grace, even in the midst of our struggles. So I remember a time when I was in San Antonio when uh, I had a Thursday morning about every other week I taught this men's Bible study and it was uh, one particular occasion where I was introducing them to this objective reality, subjective reality distinction to help them to understand their experience of faith and that of the objective truths and realities of Almighty God and how those two things interact with one another. And I used as an example the story of the prodigal son. 
And what I used and talked about was that the Father's love was objective reality. It was steadfast. It was true whether either one of the sons believed it or not, tapped into it or not. The Father loved no matter what. But subjectively, they may not be in it. And so there was a guy in that Bible study, and he's listening to this distinction and listening to the story, and I kept talking about how the father was bringing that celebration of that objective reality to the midst of the struggle. And he started thinking about his own experience in his own marriage. Been married for a little while, and not one cataclysmic event, but just a slow drift in his marriage to lovelessness. And he's thinking about his life in the light of God's love and the way that he and his wife treat one another. He had an anniversary coming up. And he didn't feel any different about his wife yet. Their relationship wasn't any different yet. They were just struggling. In fact, he told me that he was waiting for her to kind of make amends or atone before he'd be willing to celebrate. As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? (laughs) So he did something. He threw an anniversary party for his wife. Their relationship wasn't any different at that moment. It was just struggle. And she was so moved, and he was so moved, that the permafrost, as a result of that party, started to melt 